Well, it's great to be with everyone tonight. The passage we'll be looking at is Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. So please turn there with me. That's Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. And I'd ask that you stand for the reading of God's word. It says, Therefore I, the prisoner in the Lord, exhort you to walk worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, being diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Let's pray. Father, as we think about these words, it is with with so much thankfulness knowing that you have given us new life. You have given us the ability through your Holy Spirit to walk worthy of the calling to which we have been called. I pray, Lord, as we look at these truths tonight, that you would use them to implant it on our hearts, that we would go away loving you more and being more obedient to you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so, let's see. Walking worthy of the calling to which you've been called. What does that mean? Would you say that that would describe you? There are few questions that are more important in the Christian's life than if you're walking worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And my desire that by the end of this time, we'd all have a better understanding of what that looks like. Before we look at that question, though, I think it's important that we take a quick recap of what's been going on in this letter up until this point and where we're going from here. For the last two weeks, we've heard both Noel and Thomas preach on the doxology that Paul gives at the end of chapter 3. The doxology, mar- the doxology marks a pivot point that takes place in the book of Ephesians. For the first three chapters, Paul puts forward almost nothing but doctrine. We see him laying do- um, a foundation of doctrine after doctrine, clearly displaying to the church the essential truths about who God is and, in contrast, who man is. Look at everything that Paul has established up until this point. He established the purpose of God in eternity and time, the Father's choice, the Father's plan accomplished in Christ, the Holy Spirit's ministry, Paul's intercession for the church, the exalted Christ in his church, the the church's history, past, present, and future, humanity outside of Christ, humanity in Christ, what it means to be in Christ, the unity of the church, the Gentiles before and after Christ's coming, Jews and Gentiles being one body in Christ, the one church on the one foundation of Christ, and then the last thing we see is Paul talking about his apostleship. Paul was making sure that the Ephesians had a proper understanding 
of who their God was before any instruction on how they were supposed to live was given. So when we look here at verse 1 in the passage tonight and see the word therefore, we know that Paul is saying that based on everything that he had just laid out, now go and do this. Go and live your life worthy of the calling to which you have been called. It's so important that we grasp this. Before we try and live in a way that pleases the Lord, we have to know the Lord. It can't be the other way around, or else we'd fall into worshiping a false god who isn't really God. Just like we see the Israelites, who just just as they had been delivered from the Egyptians, um, raise up a golden calf and begin worshiping it. That's how we'd act if we aren't rightly instructed through the word of God who we are worshiping and how we are to worship. We need to prioritize knowing God first and foremost before we try, try pleasing him. There's a big movement that's rampant all around the world um, where people say we don't need doctrine, we just need Jesus. The problem with that mindset is that without doctrine, we have, no ability, um, we have the ability to shape Jesus into however we want. That kind of belief isn't just problematic, it's satanic. The Mormons say they serve Christ, but they don't serve the Christ of the Bible. The Muslims highly esteem Christ, but not the Christ of the Bible. Catholics serve Christ, but not the Christ as displayed through scriptures. Many of the people marching down in these parades we see about, um, about pro, um, pro-choice and pro-LGBTQ, they typically have flags, a lot of them, if you look, have flags talking about how Christ is for their movement. Do you see how demonic this kind of teaching is? Because of how prevalent it is all around us, it's vital that you're on constant guard against any strange teachings that might expose itself around you that isn't biblical. There have been few things that have led more people astray than not having a biblical understanding of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, the triune God whom we serve. Paul knew the importance of this and wanted to make sure that the church at Ephesus knew this as well. That's why he was so concerned in this book about laying a proper foundation of doctrine before turning to how we live. So now, where that puts us tonight, is beginning to look at the duty of a Christian. The first three chapters were on doctrine, and the last three chapters are on duty. I love what one commentator said about this. Christian conduct flows from Christian doctrine. The duty of Christians derives directly from the unspeakable debt of gratitude that they owe for all that they have received in Christ. As we have seen how much we have received in Christ from the last three verses we've been looking at, now we'll begin what our response should be. So my first point tonight is a call to sanctification. Verse 1 says, Therefore I, the prisoner in the Lord, exhort you to walk worthy of the calling to which you have been called. What is Paul's primary focus as he makes this statement? Sanctification. 
The exhortation to walk worthy of the calling to which you have been called is an exhortation to live a sanctified life. Sanctification means the process of beginning to grow in holiness or becoming more like Christ. It's something that flows from being regenerated or in other terms, being born again. That's another reason reason why Paul waited until the fourth chapter to begin even touching on the subject. His first focus was on regeneration and justification because if we aren't justified before God through the blood of Jesus, then sanctification is of no use and it's impossible. As we know, justification in the Christian's life is something that's 100% a working of God. It's a gift of God. Sanctification, on the other hand, is something that is absolutely the Spirit's doing, but is also something that we're called to take part in. It's not something that we just let go and let God, as has been very popular teaching for the last 150 years. It's something that we're each responsible for growing in as we have been enabled through the Holy Spirit. And what that looks like could be compared to the cultivation of a garden. Say you have a plot of land, and it's a completely dead plot of land. Nothing can grow on this plot of land. And in a moment, it's, the land becomes fertile. It's given the ability to grow life. If you take that plot of land, the very first thing you want to do is start removing everything that would hinder life from being able to grow there. So any stones, sticks, rough terrain, you get that stuff out. Then you begin tilling the land, preparing the land. You plant seeds, and then as they rise up, you actively are watering them, watering them, watering them. And then you're also at the same time constantly pulling out weeds, getting rid of anything that would hinder that growth. If you look at any garden in this day and age, if you go to England and look at these gardens, the most beautiful gardens you will find are always gardens that people have put their sweat and blood into. It's not something that just happens overnight. And it's that same way as Christians. We can't look at our lives and think, well, I'm not very sanctified. That's on God. We're all called to actively, when, we're, when we become Christians, when that act of grace happens in our lives, we all need to remove the things, that, the sins that are so prevalent, like those little rocks and stones. First thing we need to do, what is actively in my life that's in opposition to God? Remove those things. And then as you start growing, as you start maturing, put things into your life. What are spiritual disciplines? Prayer, reading the word, fasting, fellowshipping with other believers. All of these things, you need to take these things and replace them with these old things that you had. And then as things spring up in your life, as there's unrepentance or as there's sin, you pluck it out like you pluck those weeds. You can't allow those things to grow. So let's see. Um, No one will be able to stand before God and blame him for the lack of fruit that flowed from their life. That's why it should be one of the highest priorities in the Christian's life. Because we will all give an account before God one day. And he has called us to live a life of obedience. It's also one of the main ways that we can know if we're walking in the faith. If our lives are bearing fruit. Listen to the words of Jesus. You will know them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. 
A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, in your name did we not prophesy, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name do many miracles, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. This doesn't mean your life will be perfect, but it means that there will be fruit flowing from your life, and that every day your, your life will resemble more and more the character of our God. So here in verse 1, Paul is calling toward believers towards sanctification. In verse 2 now, he begins showing ways in which sanctification is manifested. He says, With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. He names four traits that are essential in the Christian's life. Humility, gentleness, patience, and love. Once again, we're born again through the working of the Spirit. Each one of these traits should begin taking root in our lives. They should also be something that manifests themselves to greater and greater degree as we grow as Christians. Our life should no longer be defined by the sinful things that once you, we once used to love and walk in. But instead, from walking by the Spirit, as it says in Galatians, our lives will bear the fruit of the Spirit. If we think about our old nature, which was enslaved to sin as filthy rags, and our new nature, which was given to us by the Lord as robes of righteousness, we're called to take off our filthy rags, and we're called to clothe ourselves in the righteousness of Christ. In Colossians 3, 5 through 9, it says, Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also lay them all aside. Wrath, anger, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you put off the old man with its evil practices. These are the things that once had dominion over us. Then it goes on to show how those who are walking according to the Spirit are supposed to live. So as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another in love, and graciously forgiving one another. He who has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord has graciously forgiven you, so also should you. Above all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Do you see the similarity in talking to one church to the another? It's the same things that they're called to put on. So my question is, are you here tonight still wearing filthy rags? Or have you been clothed in the righteousness of Christ? Consider this. When you think about your life on a day-to-day basis, what would you say defines it? Is it more defined by sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed, idolatry, wrath, anger, malice, slander, abusive speech from your mouth? 
Or is your life defined by compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, forgiveness, and love? Really take a moment to consider this. If your life is defined by the things the wrath of God is coming upon, then you need to repent and turn from those things. Humble yourself before the true and living God and acknowledge that you are a sinner that needs his grace. Acknowledge that you can do nothing in your filthy rags and ask him to clothe you in his righteousness. Humble yourself. Humble yourself. Recognize your complete inability to do anything in your own strength and your absolute need for Christ and his grace. This is the first trait that Paul mentions in this passage, and I believe it's also the most important. It's the most important because recognizing our complete inability and humbling ourselves before God is the starting point for a Christian. As James says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. There's no way to be a prideful Christian because pride is always something that is in opposition to God. So again, humble yourself. Humility isn't something that the world looks at as a virtue. The Romans and Greeks didn't even have a word for humility. So it was the early Christians that came up for the Greek word that we see in the New Testament that we see as humility. The concept of humility would have only been looked at at a negative light to people of that time. And let's be real, in in the day and age we live in, it's the same way. Pride and self-centeredness will always be championed in the eyes of this lost and dying world. I mean, look at the most, one of the most heinous sins that's praised by this world, um, by this world in this day and age. Their slogan, gay pride. It's something that they love and it's something that they champion. But not to the Christian. Pride to the Christian is something to be looked at as the horrible sin which it is and needs to be cut out of our lives whenever it pops its evil head up. And trust me, pride loves popping its head up in every area of our lives. So we have to be constantly on guard, ready to kill it before it has time to take any root. Otherwise, it'll get us entangled in all sorts of different sins. It's not something that we can be idle with and expect to have victory in. We have to be in a constant posture of heart to fight against it. We need to be daily and hourly laying our lives down in humility before God and asking him to maintain us with a humble heart. So if there's anything I want you to walk away with tonight, it's this. That there is absolutely no pride in the Christian's life. When we begin to grasp the fact that our holy creator, the Lord Jesus, came to this world to be nailed to a cross to bear your sin and to bear my sin, you begin to realize that there is nothing in our lives worth boasting about. The only thing worth boasting about is Christ Jesus our Lord. If our king set aside all his heavenly majesty and came to this earth not to be served, but to serve, then how can we think that any other posture is appropriate in our lives? To bear the name of Christ in this fallen world is one of reproach, shame, and hatred. We must mirror the words of John the Baptist when he said, I must decrease and you must increase. We have to all count the cost 
and give ourselves fully to him. There's no middle ground in the life of a Christian. There's no lukewarmness. Looking at these other three traits that are mentioned here, gentleness, patience, and love, they cannot grow in the Christian's life outside of humility. And all these traits aren't to be manifested in the Christian's life just for their own sake. They're supposed to be used to serve and love the body with. Going on in this passage, it says, well, in the rest of, we'll start in chapter two, uh, verse two, it still says, bearing with one another in love, being diligent to keep the unity of the body in the bond of peace. Both of these commands that Paul gives have to do with our fellowshipping with other believers. We've been unified together as the body of Christ through the spirit of God that's at work within us. That's an amazing thing. To know that we are brothers and sisters in Christ and that the Holy Spirit is the one that unifies us together. It's something that this lost world will never understand. They will never understand the indescribable love that the Holy Spirit has put into our hearts for the the Lord Jesus. They will never understand the hope that sustains us. They will never understand why we'd forsake all earthly joys and willingly go to our deaths for the sake of the gospel. The world can't understand these things and so many more because they are enemies to the cross and love the darkness. But not us. We get to share in the hope of the calling to which we have been called. God has illuminated in our hearts the truths of his word and unified us together in these things. And the unity of the spirit that Paul talks about here doesn't start in heaven, but it starts as soon as we become Christians. God's plan for his body isn't that um, we would live in isolation from other believers, but that we'd actively enter into one another's lives to serve one another, to encourage one another, to rebuke one another when needed, to take the Lord's supper together, to worship the Lord together. All these things we're called to do together. And if you're a Christian here tonight, you cannot forsake these things. Forsaking Christ's body is forsaking Christ himself. As Christians, we are called to live lives surrounded by other believers. It's a command given by the Lord that we don't have a say in. So in order to obey the words of Paul, to bear with one another in love, and to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, we have to be living lives that are surrounded by other believers. What's the main difficulty in all of this, though? The main difficulties is that we're still sinners, and Satan would love nothing more to re- than to wreak havoc on the church. Because there is still sin in us, and because Satan hates the church, unity isn't something that comes naturally. It has to be diligently maintained. It isn't something that can be maintained unless the body is functioning the way it ought. That's why Paul emphasizes humility, gentleness, patience, and love before he goes on to talking about the body. Because these traits are necessary in keeping unity with one another. Where does this unity, though, ultimately come from? As it says in this passage, the spirit The unity that we have is upheld and sustained by the working of the Holy Spirit that's at work within us. Without him keeping us unified, all of this would be a lost cause. He is the one that causes humility, 
gentleness, patience, and love. So it's to him that we should be completely dependent on as we seek to live lives with other brothers and sisters in Christ. How many people in this room have been a part of a church that is void of Christian unity? How many have seen the damage that comes from those within the body lacking the traits named here? I'm sure everyone has witnessed to some degree or another and can understand why it's something that has to be constantly guarded against. The church is one of the greatest gifts that Christians have while here on this earth. But just like a marriage, if unrepentant sin takes root within it, it can go from being one of the greatest gifts the Lord has given us to something that causes unspeakable damage. We have to be on constant guard against this. Unity is something that has to be fought for at all costs. That certainly, though, doesn't mean that we compromise on the truths of Scripture. But knowing that we talked, but knowing that we're talking about Christ's bride here, and seeing his example in laying his life down for her, we ought to make it one of the highest goals to maintain unity with the bride of Christ. Spurgeon says, The unity of the Spirit ought to be kept, dear friends, because Satan is so busy to mar it. He knows that the greatest glory of Christ will spring from the unity of his church, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. There is no church happiness where there is not church unity. Let a church be disinfected and divided. The schism in the body is death and to all hallowed fellowship. We cannot enjoy communion with one another unless our hearts be one. Our work for God, how feebly it is done when we are not agreed. The enemy cannot desire a better ally than strife in the midst of our camp. Can ye not agree, said a warrior of old? When your enemy is in sight, Christians, can you not agree to keep the unity of the Spirit when a destroying Satan is ever on the watch, seeking to drag immortal souls down to perdition? We must be more diligent in this matter. We must, surge, we must seek to purge out from ourselves anything which would divide, and to have in our hearts every holy thought which would tend to unite us with our brethren. I am not when I join a Christian church to say, I am quite certain I shall never break its unity. I am to suspect myself of a liability that is evil. And I am to watch with all diligence that I keep the unity of the Spirit. Again, we must make unity with the body of Christ a priority in our lives. If you were to examine your life right now, would you say that the unity of the Spirit Would you say that the unity of the Spirit is being maintained with the way you're living, or are you hurting the body of Christ with the way you're living? If this is the case, then remove at all costs that which is hindering you from properly living in unity with your brothers and sisters in Christ. You don't want to quench the Holy Spirit that indwells you because of this. Also, how miserable a life this brings for anyway. I'm sure all, everyone in this room knows people who have a reputation for causing disunity among the body. They all seem so stripped of joy within their spirits. It's not worth it for yourselves, and it certainly won't be worth it when you stand before the Lord. Let's be known for the unity we have as feather, f- brothers and sisters who are heirs of Christ. Doesn't that sound wonderful? So to end, I'd like to look at three quick ways to encourage you as we leave here tonight. 
Number one, in every decision you make in this life, whether big or small, ask yourself if what you're about to do is helping you live in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. What are ways that you're using the time that he gave you wastefully? If you can think of things that are hindering your walk with Christ and getting in the way of you maturing as a believer, cut these things out of your life. I promise you that Paul wasn't using his free time to watch Netflix or YouTube videos. We've got to have an eternal perspective on how we use our time. We can't let this culture and what's normal for them become what's normal for us. And then what are the things in your life that you need to do more of? Ask the Lord to ingrain this way of thinking into every aspect of your life. And then number two, recognize that humility, gentleness, patience, and love are essential means for walking worthy of the calling we're called to. We need to be daily bringing each one of these traits before the Lord and asking him to increase them in our lives. So often we're blinded to our own weaknesses. So put yourself in a place of accountability where someone can hold you accountable in areas where you're falling short. I'm sure each one of you can think of areas in your life where these traits are hindered. Um, Don't be hardened to this. Instead, go to the Lord and repent and ask him to grow you in these things. And then number three, the Holy Spirit has given us the gift of unifying us together as the brothers and sisters in Christ. Don't forsake this gift. Each one of us has busyness in our lives, but we need to guard and prioritize time with the body to the best of our abilities. Don't allow leisurely time to get in the way of this. Get involved with a home group or a Bible study and use the gifts the Lord has given you to actively serve and love one another. If you don't know practical ways to do this, then I encourage you to talk to one of the elders and they'd love to help point you in directions you can do this. Life is so short. None of us want to look back in our final days and see a life not lived worthy of the calling to which we've been called. Paul's life after his conversion was consumed with living worthy of it. His aim was to live a life to the glory of God to ever grow in sanctification so that his life here on earth would be more and more pleasing to his master. But it didn't end there. He took what the Lord was doing in him and then went out and encouraged other brothers and sisters to live in the same way. And that's how our lives should be lived out as well. Pursuing to live a life pleasing to the Lord and then entering into the lives and encouraging others to do the same. And why do we ultimately seek to live this way? Just as Noel pointed out last week, to him be the glory in the church. We seek to live like this so that our Lord would receive the glory that he deserves from within the church. We are his and our aim should be to live lives that bring glory to his name. So let that be our ultimate aim and motivation for our lives. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for the gift that it is to know you, to know you as you've presented yourself in the, through your word and for more importantly, Lord, for br- taking our dead lives and breathing life into them. I know thinking about my own life, Lord, that there is nothing that I have ever done apart from you of any good, but it is only you that I desire to boast in. So Lord, I pray that as we leave here tonight that our boasting would be in Christ in Christ alone, and that we would use this life you have given us, use this 
abundant joy that we have to serve others, to love others, to build up your bride, to care for your bride, to serve your bride, to ultimately serve and love you, Father. I pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen.